This is Fluid Truth, and I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. We explore a simple question of whether there is equity in the justice system. The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation is being edited. I'm pleased to introduce attorney Errol Skyers as my guest today. Attorney Skyers is no stranger or novice to the legal arena here in Connecticut. He has a wide range of trial experience in personal injury and criminal law on both the state and federal levels. He's made a career from persuading juries to generously find in favor of personal injury clients, while also gaining not guilty verdicts for clients who have been accused of serious criminal felonies. I appreciate that Attorney Skyers has chosen to share his story with us here at Fluid Truth. One story that comes to mind immediately when you speak of impact, I think about the system that we have, the system of justice that we use in this country to make a determination of what is just, that is our jury system. And very, very early in my career, I had a case that I will never forget. When I started practicing law, it was my intention to, as soon as possible, as soon as I was able, and it happened within the first year, uh, to try jury cases. I wanted to try as many jury cases as I could because my attitude at the time, I'm almost 30 years into the practice now, but my attitude at the time was that I didn't want to wait until I had a really good sense of the judges, the prosecutors, the methodologies before I started my first trial. I didn't want to be 10 years in, 12 years in, trying my first case. I wanted to come right out of the gate and start trying cases. And so the kind of practice I had initially was a criminal defense practice. And I had this one particular case, which was a very, very simple case. This case was a case where my client was accused of selling drugs. He uh, was charged with narcotics offenses, not just uh, simple possession, but uh, possession of narcotics with the intent to sell. And it was not um, not squeaky clean, not um, not innocent by any means. I I believe that he had um, drug dealing or drug selling. Uh, experiences prior to this charge and so uh, and, and he had other criminal convictions prior to this particular charge so it's not like he was uh, solely and totally innocent walking in the, in the door but what's interesting about this is the way that the trial transpired and it really gives you a sense of the impact that our justice system has uh, from the viewpoint of those who sit in judgment. So we, we have a very unique system uh, when we compare it to the rest of the world in that 
we don't have professional jurists. We take people from the street, right? We take citizens, ordinary persons, and we put them all together. And we don't say that you are 12 individuals who must deliver or pronounce justice. We put them all together and then they say, you are one. We put them together and say, now you act as one. And it's my experience that juries, in my experience, have in 90% of the time uh, been able to sift through and figure out what the truth is and what what the real um, circumstances are and how um, they can ferret out and meet out some measure of justice within you know, our abilities because we're all human beings. So in this particular case, my client is charged with these drug offenses. And you know this, has, this takes a, a, quite a while because we have to pick a jury and it is a state case, it's not a federal case. In the state of Connecticut, you can pick a federal jury in a matter of hours. In the state of Connecticut, it's gonna take a couple of days because we have what's called individual voir dire. And so immediately the impact on the justice system in Connecticut for someone who's charged with a crime, remember they're presumed innocent until proven guilty. So even though my inclination is that this guy is not squeaky, squeaky clean, he certainly deserves a defense and he has to be presumed innocent. Well, it's gonna take a couple of days out of his life to get his justice because because we have individual voir dire, he's gonna have to be there a couple of days just for jury selection. We didn't get to the evidence yet, just for jury selection. Now that's impactful, especially, I mean, over the, the course of my career, I have represented people who I thought were innocent and I knew were innocent. And they had to take time out of their job and go down and sit in front of juror after juror to pick a proper jury and, and to get their justice. You know, In most instances, I, I can't think of any person who I thought was innocent that I took the trial that lost. I can't think of any anybody like that. But in the instances where uh, they were innocent and they had to go to trial, they take some serious, significant time out of their lives. That's very impactful. So this young man uh, took time out to be with me and, and to present his case. We picked a jury in a couple of days, and now the evidence portion starts, right? And the evidence in these types of cases, typically, maybe there's a lay person saying that the drugs were sold or bought or but typically there are police officers, this police testimony. This police officer testifies, this police officer testifies. In this particular instance, the claim was that my client sold drugs to a particular individual and that it was caught during a surveillance. Now the surveillance was not a camera surveillance, so they didn't have photographs, but all they had was testimony of the surveilling officers. In the typical circumstance, when they do this sort of operation, often it's called a sting, they will arrest the buyer so that they have the money and they have the drugs. And then the buyer might cooperate and testify, but at the minimum, they'll say that the buyer was arrested. In this particular case, they didn't arrest the buyer. The buyer bought and got in the car and drove off. And the testimony by the officers was, we meant to arrest him, but he moved too quickly, he got away. 
and we were surveilling the area and we didn't want to blow our cover. So officer after officer is testifying. And by this time, my client has indicated to me that he has sold the drugs, okay? He told me that he has sold the drugs and he sold it to that guy that got in the car. But that guy's gone. He's not testifying. He's not coming anywhere around. And that's my one of my concerns. I'm concerned about, is this going to testify? Is he going to be presented by the prosecution? And the prosecution could not present him because they didn't know who he was. So what we have now are testimonies by police officers. Typically, testimony by police officers is pr pretty damning because everyone wants to believe a police officer. Everyone wants to wants to believe that police officers have a certain degree of infallibility because they're there for a particular purpose to protect us, to serve us uh, within their jurisdictions, um, to make sure that people aren't harmed by folks who have nefarious uh, motivations. And so we want police officers present and doing their jobs properly. Every once in a while, certainly you're gonna have police officers who don't. And in the context of a trial, it is my experience that once a police officer takes a stand, it's almost like you are challenging their credibility. I mean, before before the first question is raised, when they take the stand, like, how dare you not believe what I'm about to tell you? And there's a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. Not unlike police officers, lawyers have chips on their shoulders too. And, and good defense lawyers have big chips on their shoulders. And, and one thing that I really enjoyed doing when I was doing criminal defense was cross-examination. And if it had to do with the police officer, I had some, some stuff scripted out that I knew was going to make my point. Well, in this particular instance, this is early in my career, so I haven't had scripted out a whole lot of things yet, and I haven't had an opportunity to really enjoy the nature of the cross-examination the way I uh, did in latter years and in, in later years. But what happened in this particular instance uh, that was poignant and that was impactful and that had an effect on not just my client but on the jury was that in order to make this case, one particular police officer that was on the stand started to embellish a little bit. He didn't have to, but he started to embellish. And his embellishment was such that he was being slightly untruthful. Now, I didn't know he was being untruthful, and I could not prove that he was being untruthful, all right? But my client knew he was being untruthful, but my client couldn't prove he was being untruthful either. Now, you got to understand, I've got to pause now and give you a little bit of the rules of evidence. First of all, lawyers have a, an ethical responsibility. We cannot instruct our clients to lie. We cannot intentionally and knowingly put forth perjured testimony you know you know your client is a uh, sell, stole the drugs you can't say okay you're gonna take the stand and say I didn't sell the drugs we we can't do that that's get against the rules and uh, it's not worth transgressing those rules for someone who is a criminal it's not worth it and so I certainly have never done that and would never do that but under the rules of evidence, in order for the jury to hear testimony, that testimony must come from a witness who takes an oath. You've seen it on TV, you've seen it and heard it all your life. 
Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? So hope you got, yes, I do. Then you can testify, right? You're speaking under oath and then you can give testimony. That's what every witness did in that particular trial. In addition to, to that rule that testimony must be sworn in, sworn testimony, there's also a practical practice from criminal defense lawyers that since the prosecution has the burden of proof, right? The prosecution must prove the case of the people or the state or the commonwealth or whatever the government, whatever the jurisdiction is, prosecution must prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. The burden is on the prosecution bringing the case to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And since the burden is on the prosecution to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, criminal defense lawyers carefully consider and carefully calculate whether they will put their own client on the stand to testify. In cases where I've had an innocent client that I thought was innocent, the likelihood of me putting them on the stand was higher because I thought they're innocent, number one. And number two, typically my innocent clients didn't have any criminal baggage in the background. But for people who for defendants or or accused persons who have prior criminal convictions or for whom you are not confident can handle the rigor of a cross-examination by a seasoned practitioner you don't want to put them up there and just blow your whole case out the water you just don't want to do that uh they get up there and they testify and next thing you know something comes out in their past or something comes out in the and and especially, you know, I don't want to paint those who are accused of crimes with a black mark or a broad brush that says they're all guilty, they're all untruthful. But in many instances, persons who have made a career of being untruthful or being criminal minded, typically those types of people like to embellish the truth or, or change the truth or stretch the truth or they try to be smarter than the other one so you got to be careful about putting someone on the stand who thinks he's going to outsmart some lawyer who already knows all the answers and is going to um demonstrate to the jury how um untruthful they are untrustworthy they are and how um what they said the first five minutes is not the same as what they said in the last 25 minutes right and so we're really careful about putting uh clients on the stand so given the rule that you have to be sworn in, given the rule that the prosecution has the burden of proof, and given the practice tip that typically we're not going to put our clients on the stand, it was not my intention to ever put my client on the stand. So given all that, this police officer on the witness stand and starts to embellish. And my client starts to shake his head from side to side as if this is not true, it's not right. And the more the officer testifies, this guy starts shaking and he starts like, his, he starts like shaking his knee and like tapping on the table. Like, I can't believe it. I can't believe this. And the more the guy's testifying, now my client's audibly speaking in my ear. Oh my God. Oh my God. He's lying. Oh my God. He's lying. Right. The jury has no idea. Larry's jury listening police officer. And so am I. And then the, the, the police officer says, and then the guy handed me, no. And then I saw the guy take the drugs out of his pocket and hand over the drugs. And so my clients told, told me this has happened, but this 
story is totally right. My client has already told me that he has dealt the drugs and he did it in a certain fashion. But this fashion that is being told to the jury, this embellished this other way is ridiculous, right? So as the officer is getting to the, you know, the coup de grave, like, yes, and then I saw the drugs, my client explodes right there at counsel table in front of the jury. Bangs on the table, stands up and says, oh my God, he's lying. I can't believe he's lying. Oh my God. And then he he marches off because, you know, sometimes when we're upset, we when we're happy, sometimes we jump up and run. And when we're sad, sometimes we, we march off. He marches off into the back of the courtroom to the wards of the courtroom doors. And he goes, he's lying. Oh my God. And he comes back to the table. And the judge says, uh, Mr. Skyers, can you control your client? And I look at him, my man. <laughs> I'm like, sit down. What are you doing? So he sits down. And the officer continues to testify. And the testimony is over. I do my cross-examination. And I don't remember my, my cross. And I don't think, because I don't remember my cross-examination, I don't think the jury remembered much of my cross-examination either. Because the most impactful thing was his real, visceral, sincere reaction. And that sincere, real, visceral reaction was in front of the people who are supposed to pronounce justice for this guy. Now the caveat is, because that was so real and it was spontaneous, it's something that can't be scripted, right? I thought about it, but in years down the road, I would never say, okay. And when the guy testifies, get up and scream, oh my God, <laughs> you can't do that. But at that point, that's what happened, all right? The evidence finally ends and closing argument is set for the next day. And I think, I think the evidence went over two days and closing argument was set for the third day. That morning, I put myself together as I usually do and thinking about my closing argument that I had worked through over the night and early into the morning. I get in my car, I go down to the courthouse, I park my car, and I'm thinking about the evidence. And that, as I'm thinking about the evidence, I'm realizing that this officer has testified that he did not have um, any special um, visual equipment like binoculars or anything. He didn't have surveillance equipment he didn't have anything like that. He had what he wanted everyone to trust, his own eyes. And I think that slowly we are moving away from trusting human eyes. We really are. I was listening to a, a, an interview today about uh, the National Basketball Association. And they were talking about how a particular basketball player had the ball in the last couple of seconds and he made it move to the basket, stepped out of bounds and then went to the basket and scored and they won the game. The team that he was playing for won the game and later on they go back and they see that he stepped out of bounds and there's no way to remedy that, right? Unless the referee saw it and called it, you can't remedy it. You can't go back in the past and remedy that. And there are so many instances where, you know, in, in modern times, we're looking at things like replays on, I mean, instant replay was a big thing, like when, when football first came on TV, but now they're replaying every single thing on you know, football and basketball. And we have our own 
replays of life with our own cell phones and cameras and there are cameras on the streets and in front of stores and i mean there's a, a way to look at every single thing and i think that what we remember from our visual experience is colored by our our experiences and our attitudes and so sometimes it's not as accurate as it should be because even though we saw it with our eyes the way we replay it is based on our attitude and our, our experiences rather than a saline camera. And I think more and more we're relying on, and we want to rely on, what the camera show, because the camera doesn't have an attitude. The camera didn't get um, yelled at by some teacher when he was in fourth grade or, or smacked around by uh, some grandmother or stopped by a cop when he didn't go through the red light. So, so the cameras are a little bit saline. So in my closing statement, when I spoke to the jury, I held up money in front of them and as I spoke, I walked backwards. So I was 10 feet away. And then I was 15 feet away. And then I was 20 feet away. Then I was 25 feet away. And then I was 30 feet away yelling at the jury because I'm 30 feet away now holding up this money. And as I'm talking to them, I ball up the money in my hand. And I said, now, how could the officer see it if it's bought up in your hand like this? And I put it in my pocket and I walked towards them and I continued my presentation. And when I took it back out of my hand, I had switched the money for the leaves and I held it in my hand and I started to walk back to the jury slowly and as I slowly walked to the jury I got within 15 feet then 10 feet then five feet then three feet and I said the money that you thought you saw is really just a bunch of leaves and I opened my hand and dropped the leaves so I thought that was impactful because it sort of makes the point how can you trust your eyes but when they went back to deliberate the jury came back in a record amount of time. And when the jury comes back quickly, you, you don't know what to make of that, you know? Um, there's an old story that lawyers like to tell when the, the client says, uh, if the jury comes back fast, is that good or bad? And the lawyer says, uh, well, if it's guilty, it's bad. <laughs> and you can't really tell, right? So the jury comes back in like um, 20 minutes. And typically juries are out, for, they gotta go through the law and go through the evidence and have a conversation. They come back in 20 minutes. And they find my client not guilty of all charges. And he's ecstatic. I am happy, obviously, because I win. It's, it's early in my career. You got to have wins because then you can feel like you're really doing something. And it wasn't until I reflected on the entire experience sometime later, week, week or two later, that I realized that my closing argument was very, very impactful. It was really impactful because I had the green money and I switched it out with some green leaves and they were able to say, hey, do I trust my eyes? But one of the more impactful things was the fact that my client testified. He didn't swear in. He didn't take an oath to tell the truth. I could not have instructed him to do what he did. But the overflow of sincerity and truth came from his reaction. And it impacted those who were watching. And it impacted them enough. In my cross-examination of that cop probably didn't do a thing. It was his reaction that impacted them enough. And then my closing argument that gave them a sense of, can we really trust what this guy said he saw, given the experience we just had in this courtroom? And so that's my story. My story is that in the courtroom, what you experience is impactful. I've spoken to judges, I've spoken to prosecutors, other defense lawyers, 
those who've been accused of crime and convicted, those who've been exonerated and jurors. And what happens in that little crucible, in that little laboratory, in that confine that is called the court of law is an experience uh, like none other. And it's, uh, it's very impactful. I've seen, I've seen juries come back after hours and hours and hours of deliberation. And the judge says, members of the jury, do you have a verdict? And they're crying, tears dripping out of their eyes, crying because they know what the truth is and they're saddened by the truth or they're happy with the truth. But it's very impactful and it's emotional. And so when uh, you ask about an anecdote or a story that is impactful, I think typically jury trials are impactful. And that particular one was uh, a multitude of impact. I mean, I've had clients jump up and scream in the middle of a courtroom, but typically it's been after the verdict comes in, right? So on a not guilty, the guy is screaming and, and hollering and the judge is saying, control your client. Or on a guilty, he's screaming and hollering and the judge is saying, control your client. And again, it was early. It was early in my trial practice. And so I'm still trying to figure out how things work, what things work. And that was fortunate for me, but I didn't see that particular experience as something where I was going to try and replicate the magic that occurred. I mean, I've had other not guilties, but it's been different magic. I'll add this, that the truth, remember the truth of the matter, the truth of the matter was he was guilty of dealing. The truth was he was guilty, but the presentation through that particular police officer who felt like he had to help the justice system, that hurt. And so all of a sudden there became a new truth. And the new truth was, we can't trust this testimony. Well, thanks for listening in today. Special thanks to our producer, Michael Bachman, and executive producer, David DeRoche. Music is provided by Audio Hero from their Jazz Lounge album. To hear more about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can listen to our podcast on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at QUPodcasts. If you have a story to share or something you want to talk about, find us on social media or shoot us an email. That address is QUPodcasts at qu.edu. All right, that's it for today. Till next time.